Good morning to you all. Good to, good to see you here. Yeah, we are starting a new series, uh, Far From Home, and we'll be talking uh, more about one of the themes of Scripture, and which is exile, and how it uh, has various lessons to teach us. So, uh, before I begin, I'm going to start with just a few introductory remarks uh, about the concept of exile in the scripture and what we have to learn from it. Remember this guy? Anyone else remember him? Yeah, okay. You remember? This was misplaced confidence, wasn't it? Right? Remember a couple weeks ago? Misplaced confidence. Well, here, let's, let's look at another guy. Uh, next slide, please. Okay. Maybe some of you uh, recognize this fellow. This is Albert Camus, who was a philosopher, uh, lived in uh, around the time of World War II, 40s and 50s, very, very influential, and is noted for a philosophy that we call postmodernism. So let's, uh, let's hit the description of postmodernism. Okay, here we go. Uh, postmodernism characterized by skepticism toward the narratives of enlightenment rationality, okay, rejection of scientific certainty or the stability of meaning, sensitive to the role of ideology in maintaining political power. Claims to objectivity are dismissed as naive realism. Of course, there's more. There's a lot more. But let's start with that. Okay. So what does that mean? Okay. A couple examples that uh, hopefully will make this a little more clear. Most of you have probably heard these words, and I'm going to tell you something I learned in school. Here it is. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? Bet you've heard that before. Famous Enlightenment scholar Thomas Jefferson. Now, a lot of good have come from those concepts of self-evident truths. But you know something? I don't believe in self-evident truth. I, uh, I know, I'm not, I'm not saying there is no truth. But I'm saying I don't believe in self-evident truth. And we live in a society today where that has largely abandoned its belief in self-evident truth. I don't believe any truth is, in fact, self-evident. There's truth, but the claim to be self-evident, I don't think, holds up. And you'll discover that most of society no longer holds to it. If you want proof, try starting to attend your local school board meeting and see where the concept of shared values and self-evident truth gets you. Okay? So we're... Okay, I see some, some people nodding. Yes, there's a problem here. If, if our society has embraced a philosophy that no longer believes in self-evident truth, then where does truth come from? Where are we going to find a truth or are we just going to become skeptical of all truth? Okay. A lot of people who grew up in, like I did, in an era of self-evident truth, I was very proud of the Declaration of Independence. I still am. 
It's a, it's a good document. Uh, but people like that often feel now like they are living in exile in their own country. That is, our society has actually moved away from them in some sense. And here they are, uh, a, an exile in their own country. And fortunately, as we consider this, the Bible has a lot to say about it. Okay, The theme of exile and home is a fundamental doctrine in the Bible. So let's start with a sounder source than the existentialists and the, and the postmodernism, okay? Let's, let's start with, uh, the creation. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning. I'm gonna read from, uh, Genesis and the book of Isaiah and several long parts that were just too big to fit on the slides. But you can grab your Bible and follow along. So here we go. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. So if we're going to uh, diagnose the, the problem of exile, of how did we become, in a sense, exiles, uh, we've got to, if we're going to find our way back home, we've got to identify where was it that we sort of stepped off the path. If you've ever been lost in the forest and suddenly you look down and you wonder, well, what were all those like blazes on the trees? What, I thought I was following a path here a little while ago and now I'm not. I have to backtrack and find out where, where I got off the path. So where did, where did man, mankind get off the path? Okay, let's, uh, Genesis 1-1 begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to skip down uh, to verse 20, where God said, Let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries or swarms in the water, every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Let fish fill the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. This is the first blessing that we find in the pages of scripture. So God has created. God has said that his creation is good. In fact, he's going to say at the end of the chapter, it's very good. And he's put his blessing upon it. God has given, made created a blessed creation. Verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. God's second blessing. And said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food, and I've given you every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that's what happened. 
Then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. So here we are. Man is at home. Man has been given a good home. And part of that being at home is it's perfectly suited to man. And man has a relationship with his creator. So not only is there a home, but there's a relational uh, openness at, at home that is part of man's uh, good, his total good and his blessed state. He's made in God's image. He's designed to have a relationship with God, his creator. On, on to a little more, uh, beginning of chapter 2 finishes the creation. The creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. The third blessing. So now God has blessed the animals He's blessed mankind, and now he's blessed a rest that he is given to his creation. Okay. Well, the beginning of the step away, the, the step toward, toward exile. Genesis 3. We'll skip to Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees of the garden? Of course, we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the, the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So, she thinks that her issue is lack of wisdom, right? The serpent says, if you eat this, you'll know something. You'll be wise, right? But actually, what she needed was, she didn't lack uh, wisdom. What she lacked was obedience. So, by choosing wisdom instead of obedience... To the command of the Lord, the path to exile begins. So, consequences. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked, 
Now, man thinks he's got a problem. And the problem is nakedness. But actually, the real problem isn't that he's naked. The real problem is that he's sinned. He's guilty now before his creator. And the relationship has now beginning to suffer the, the severing of the relationship between God and man. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree uh, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Okay, and then Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So now in the division from God, there is the first glimpse of light, of hope. Isn't that odd? It's not much, just a little. There's a promise here in verse 15. The offspring of the woman is going to strike your head, serpent. And you, serpent, will strike his heel. But there's an offspring here that's going to be a part of undoing the work of the serpent. So the first uh, light and uh, remedy for the division is spoken by God. When this will be, how it will happen, Scripture doesn't yet reveal. But let's follow uh, the narrative here. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he'd been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden and placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So man has now been uh, exiled from uh, the garden physically as well as relationally. So what began with sin and a relational rift between man and his creator and Lord is now become a physical separation that they uh, he's banished from the presence of the Lord, banished from the garden. And this begins the exile that then uh, a theme that is concerns much of the Old Testament. But, interesting note, there's, uh, there's some hope there in the woman's heart. The beginning of the next chapter, chapter 4. Okay, this offspring, God's mentioned that the offspring is key to, to the solution. Now here, Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, 
she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. So Cain ends up being uh, the offspring, right? Adam and Eve had offspring, and it was a son. Could this be? No. The firstborn of all human offspring grew up and became a murderer. So, Eve's hope that this would be no big deal, easy solution, no such thing the scripture presents to us. In fact, the disaster of the fall and the exile from the garden is quickly followed by the disaster of the flood and then followed by the disaster of the dividing of the races at the Tower of Babel, the separating of mankind into uh, different, uh, different languages so people can no longer communicate with each other and they're scattered. They're scattered. So all of these disasters fall in here in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. So we, we come now, the, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are kind of the prologue that sets the stage for the entire uh, Old Testament. So already the themes uh, have been introduced, the theme of uh, disaster and exile, but also a theme which is going to come to be, uh, I think, the major theme of the entire Old Testament, and that is the theme of promise. God has made a promise that there's going to be an offspring. And this promise is now going to be more and more developed as the centuries, as the chapters, as the sections of the Old Testament scriptures uh, are revealed. We immediately come to Abraham in chapter 12, but uh, I won't... I can't hit every single uh, part of the uh, development of God's promise. So I'm going, to, I'm going to move to a particular one, maybe an unexpected one, because it's one of the most important uh, steps on the road of God revealing his promise to man. And that occurs in the reign of a king named King Ahaz, now, it's not Ahab, but Ahaz. Ahaz turns out to be a very bad king. His reign is uh, recounted in 2 Kings 16, in 2 Chronicles 28, and also in the book of the prophet Isaiah, starting in chapter 7. So during the reign of King Ahaz, uh, the the king leads the nation in apostasy, turning away from their God. He actually uh, goes to uh, Damascus, sees an altar of a what he thinks is a victorious uh, army, and he says, you know, I'm going to remodel the 
uh, temple in Jerusalem and, and make it like that. So he sends plans back to the priests in charge of the temple to have it remodeled to move this new uh, pagan altar in to a central place and, and push off to the side the altar that Solomon had built for Yahweh. So Ahaz is a very bad king. His reign is disastrous for the nation of Israel. Uh, but in this context of darkness, uh, God is going to work. So let's uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to uh, read some of the uh, God's dealings with the nation in the time of King Ahaz. So, Ahaz, son of Jotham, grandson of Uzziah, was king of Judah. King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, set out to attack Jerusalem. So here's two adjoining countries, nearby countries, who've entered into an alliance to attack Jerusalem. They were unable to carry out their own plan. Now, this is kind of a summary statement, more details now. Uh, this is at the beginning of this situation here, this uh, alliance. The news had come into the, to the royal court of Judah. Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. So they are terrified of this geopolitical uh, alliance against them. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, take your son, Shir Jashub, and go out to meet King Ahaz. You will find him at the end of the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool near the road leading to the field where cloth is washed. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of these two burned out embers, King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, son of Remaliah. Yes, the kings of Syria and Israel are plotting against him, saying we will attack Judah and capture it for ourselves. Then we'll install the son of Tabeel as Judah's king. So the plan was actually to put in a, a, a subservient kind of vassal king and uh, get rid of Ahaz. So that was threatening. Uh, but here's what the sovereign Lord says. This invasion will never happen. It will never take place. And Yahweh goes on to explain that Ahaz doesn't need to worry because both of these kings and their kingdoms are going to be swept away. And he concludes with, unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. So Ahaz's basic problem here, geopolitically, is actually not the alliance of Syria and Israel, the northern tribes. His basic problem is that he doesn't trust Yahweh. He doesn't trust the Lord. His trust is in these alliances. Now, history in the, in the second Kings tells us that he actually sent money to the king of Assyria to induce him to attack his enemies, kind of same kind of stuff we have nowadays. If your enemies, if, if my enemy's enemy is something like them, that, then they're my friends. You know, I can use them. So, uh, so King Ahaz tries some of that. And 
but he won't trust Yahweh. Later, the Lord sent this message through Isaiah to King Ahaz. He says, Isaiah is going to say, Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. So, uh, unfortunately, a a hypocritical statement on the part of the king. He wasn't going to trust the Lord. He wasn't going to test the Lord, but he wasn't going to trust the Lord either. He'd already, uh, in a sense, put his chips down. He He was gambling that the other gods would protect him. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then. The Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. Okay, what's yogurt and honey got to do with it? Yogurt and honey is the food of foraging, not the food of settled cultivation. So the land is going to go through uh, invasion, but it's not going to be destroyed. Jerusalem will be preserved. Before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will be deserted. Then, but, King Ahaz and the people are not going to escape the punishment of God. Then the Lord will bring things on you, your nation and your family, unlike anything since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. So, in this very dark setting uh, where the king and the people have both refused to put their faith in in the true God, the God who'd been active throughout their history. They were going to put their faith in, in idols and foreign gods. God is still going to work. He has said, listen, even if you don't ask for a sign, I'm going to give you one. And here's what it is. It's going to be a child, right? A child is going to be born, and his name, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This prophecy, hopefully you recognize, is picked up by the New Testament authors uh, when they show that God's plan of saving his people was already prophesied and developing hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. God's uh, statement in Genesis 3 that there would be an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent is now made clear that this offspring is going to come as a child. But the other thing that is revealed by the, the name that's given to this child is this will be no mere earthly child, will it? The the child's name is going to be God with us. God with us. Emmanuel. 
So this, this child will be part of the outworking of God's undoing of the, the curse in Genesis 3. This is another step on the road of promise that uh, the people of Israel are going to be uh, delivered by the work of Yahweh. But what do, what do they, what does King uh, Ahaz, what is he told to do? What are, what are we told to do? We're told to believe in the Lord. You see, when Jesus came, his uh, command was to repent and follow. So what Ahaz was unwilling to do, what led directly to punishment on him and the kingdom, what led to the worst disaster uh, uh, up to that point that had ever befallen the, uh, the people of God, God's chosen people, the exile to Babylon. All of this was going to happen because Ahaz and the people were not willing to trust the Lord and his word. So you see, back, back to the beginning, when God spoke to Adam and Eve and said, I'm giving you a command. Don't, you can eat of any tree. You're in a blessed home right here. Everything is very good. And most of all, it's you and me. We're, we're, we have fellowship together. Uh, but don't uh, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obey my word. Trust me. So, so the word to King Ahaz is the same it's to trust God. So as we kind of circle back to uh, Camus and, and the postmodern experience we find ourselves in here, there is still, to this day, a call to trust God. And that trust is not merely an intellectual exercise. It's a relational step of faith. It's not merely believing a list of propositions about God. It's casting our entire trust on Him and trusting in His character that what He has said to us is true and reliable. Jesus introduced Himself as not only the way, but the truth and the life. And so through him, we have the path back uh, to a relationship with our father. Now, the path back has got to start relationally, right? It's got to start with us receiving not just uh, again, intellectual propositions, but trusting in God, who's our loving Heavenly Father. And so the postmodern uh, situation we find ourselves in as, as a culture 
where there's uh, skepticism about all truth, uh, the answer to that is not some sort of rational proof of the existence of God, although there are good arguments for why God must exist. I think he's left his marks all over creation, uh, and we still see God's fingerprints uh, all over creation. Uh, but the, uh, the way back is by trusting in, in God and his word. And so let's, we'll be continuing on with the, with the series considering the theme of, of exile and restoration uh, in the next few weeks. And we'll be ta- taking up other areas of the Bible as we consider these things. But this is kind of where it begins, is the original exile in the book of Genesis, and then leading up to the, uh, the great exile of the people that was a, uh, a shared experience of all the writers of the New Testament. They looked back on this and said, ah, yeah, now I see God's been at work all along through all of this. And his call to us today is the same as his call to others before. It's to trust him and not harden our hearts. So don't be like King Ahaz. Let's, uh, let's pray. I think Dan has uh, another song. So anyway, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would be people who are... Uh, live with all our chips on Jesus Christ. He's the one that we can stake our life, uh, who's good and loving and is the one who controls uh, the way back to the Father, the undoing of the exile and the way home. So we thank you for him who is the way. Uh, the truth and the life. In Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen.